Hello, and welcome to the Trail and Adventure Motorbike Podcast. With me, Clive Barber, and my good mate, Noel Tom. For the days when you can't ride your bike, there's always the Trail and Adventure Motorbike Podcast. Welcome to the 20th and final episode of season two. You'll have to excuse my voice, I'm just recovering from COVID. Thankfully, it's not been too bad. We're off on a trip, so we're going to take a few weeks out, but we'll, we'll be back with season three. We've still got loads of great people lined up to, to be on the podcast, so we will be back in a few weeks' time. So we decided to go out with a bang. We're joined by the motorcycle legend that is Austin Vince. You all know him, right? Everybody knows him. Surely you wouldn't be here otherwise. But just in case, here is his entry from Wikipedia. Austin Vince is best known for his long-distance adventure motorcycle expeditions, twice around the world as part of Mondo Enduro and Terra Circa, which were both produced as TV documentaries, as well as presenting the Mondo Enduro and co-presenting the Terra Circa TV programmes, Vince has also written and presented the Roots series on the Discovery Channel. Latterly, he played the math teacher in the first two seasons of Channel 4's That'll Teach Him, and has in the past taught at St John's Northwood as a maths teacher. He also served in the Royal Engineers. Vince attended the private Mill Hill School in North London, then was sponsored through university by the army, but became a pacifist while there and had to pay them to get out. After university, he returned to Mill Hill as a teacher and used to teach at St John's in Northwood. He is married to long-distance female motorcyclist Lois Price, who has completed several notable expeditions on her own. He returned for a second stint at St John's School in Northwood before leaving in 2016 to pursue his passion for mini motorcycle adventure trips, brackets, mini mondos in the Pyrenees. Before we start then, is there a chance that this is too noisy and we should reschedule rather than you gamely go ahead and then we get something that you can't use or people complain about it? Uh, we're we're not that fussy to be honest. No. We're we're very much like yourself, DIY ethos. Just yeah, have, but that doesn't have a go. Excuse low production value. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's. I think it'll be fine. We'll see if it gets too bad. We'll um. We'd welcome that kind of interaction anyway, wouldn't we? We'd like that. I think wow. so. Adds character yeah. and yeah. something to talk about. Uh, okay, yeah. you're wrong on all of those. <laughs> <laughs> it's you know, just because you're. Charming doesn't mean that your shot could be out of focus. Hey, listen, we've we've seen the baskets you've put on the front of your motorcycles. You can't criticise. <laughs> well, you should. Yeah, that's next. Yeah. As you've obviously guessed already, we like to keep it fairly lighthearted and fun. We normally go through people's just to get people to introduce themselves, tell us a little bit about their biking history, and then we, we're going to move on. I've got a number of quite a few questions to. Ah, yeah. see Great, far away questions there. Yeah. And then we've got a 10-section either-or type scenario. And then we've actually oh, got yes. some listener questions as well. So we've got some trusted listeners. That we... Have you have you advertised the fact that I was going to be on? Only to about six people Okay. to say, have you got any questions you'd like to uh, to send in? So we've got a couple Why, of why only six? Who are these six people? Oh, it doesn't matter. It's people that have been on. <laughs> people have been on it mainly. They're the only people that listen. 
<laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's in the spirit of the podcast uh, to to vet the, <laughs> to vet the, uh, the questions. They're all they're all age eight and under. That's all. I I imagine know. question time running like that. <laughs> <laughs> we actually vet the listeners, let alone the people that are on <laughs> the questions that are on the podcast. It's a very select audience, you see. It's funny for me, this Austin, because most people come on this blooming podcast and cite Charlie and what's his face, or Ewan and what's his face as their main inspiration for getting into traveling by motorcycle. Whereas I think most people got into traveling by motorcycle because of you and because of the whole Mondo Enduro thing. And that's certainly how I got into it. It's well, great on. because um, The Long Way Round is a remake yeah. <laughs> of <laughs> Mondo Enduro and Terra Circa. Yeah. And was where they got the idea from. I suppose we're both right. Yeah. I'd never considered before I read Mondo Enduro, which I stumbled across through a strange promotion in a magazine, I think, that I had a DR350 at the time. I never rode it more than 30 miles from home. I really didn't. And I never considered that I could travel on it until I read that. And I've been riding motorcycles for probably nearly 40 years at that stage. Well, it, it was if a I had a nickel for every, everybody that said that. And then if I had another nickel for the extraordinary inertia or lack of inertia or obstructive forces that the motorcycle industry has launched against normal-sized bike as a long-distance um, vehicle. I mean, it's quite mad. It's quite, it really, really, when, 100 years from now, mm. when we're all dead and somebody kind of like writes some kind of retrospective history, they will ask, like those books about, um, I've, got a, I've got a book at home called Keep, keep, keeping it light, keeping it. We want to keep this thing nice. <laughs> no, don't ignore that. Ignore I've a, that advice. I've got a book called The Gestapo, Jews, and Ordinary Germans. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's a massive, serious study of kind of like how do they get away with it? That kind of how do they do how do they do? How do the Nazis do what they did without some you know how much uh, without somebody uh, saying hang on. Get? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, without uh, and um and I think it's going to be like that. People are going to look back at this kind of enormous uh adventure bike madness thing and just say was like was everybody asleep <laughs> or or I mean how but there is, there is and this is a really serious lesson from history to 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 keep it frivolous and frothy a bit more. <laughs> if you can get a load of middle-aged men to do something incredibly nonsensical uh, and and then get them to think that it's a good idea, then then anything is possible. Yeah, of course. Anything yeah. is possible. Yeah. Why spend five grand when you can spend 18 grand on a bike yeah. with much bigger yeah. margins? I mean, it's one of our pet things, isn't it? We talk constantly about getting smaller bikes because, I mean, where we ride, you just couldn't ride a, a 990 or a 1200 around the Lake District. Well, you, yeah. you could if you were Christian Pfeiffer or bless his soul. But I think I've heard you say, Austin, you know, that the perfect adventure bike is a bike that you can pick up, carry around, has as little sort of is maintenance free as possible, and it's essentially a bicycle. Mm, of course, yeah, yeah. Or the perfect adventure bike is the smallest motorbike you're prepared to be seen on. Yeah. So, and I always think it's funny when the CRF came out. All the journalists, I remember reading lots and lots of articles saying, "Who's going to buy this bike? What is this bike for?" It completely baffled them, didn't it? That someone had made a 250 tra trail bike. Who's going to buy it? I read every journalist saying, "Who's going to buy this bike?" And they just did not see it coming at all, did they? I don't think. Well, that's a you know, that's another another extraordinary thing that I've learned in the last twenty years that I didn't know 
let's say, 30 years ago when I passed my motorbike test, it never occurred to me that, it's like the music press, actually. If you, if, you, if you do an actual academic study of the music press and the music industry, it's quite extraordinary how out of touch it is, given that that's the thing that they're meant to be in touch with. Yeah. The one thing that they're meant to know a bit about. Um, and and I re- and I've seen so many. My my best friend uh, from university, you know, we're in a band together at university. He went on to become the editor of Kerrang, and then he became the editor of Mojo, uh, and remained editor in chief of Kerrang and Q magazine. So I've kind of through him, I've always had a kind of funny little finger on the pulse of the music industry. Certainly since let's say the mid eighties. I first met him in nineteen eighty four, and and we you know we talk all the time, and it's and I've really really been fascinated in the parallels between the music press and the motorcycle press in, yeah. in terms of the way that the press and the industry exists only to sell you something yeah it doesn't exist to promote what is good no no definitely not anyway that's a very broad issue. Yeah. We can now take this podcast in a very, a very different direction. I can imagine <laughs> the people, the keyboard warriors, are already hitting their their <laughs> complain now shortcut button. They haven't mentioned knobbly tires once. And they, what is this? It's like talking rubbish about records. <laughs> but what's going to go on about the CD next? The CD is not as good as the the other twelve inch. Shut up, Vince. Shut I'm up. Sure, well, I was going to say, I'm sure I once heard. I think might, Greg might have told me this story that you'd once gone to a TRF meeting to give a talk on, tra- well, what everybody thought was going to be tra- talk on trail riding and anything to do with uh, with the TRF. And I think instead you gave a, a very interesting talk on, I think, either steam or railways. Or was it safety, the, fil- and, safety films or, or something it? like that? It was, it was Andy Hill. Uh, Andy Hill. Was it? No, 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 that was, that was um, I know what you're talking about. That was one night where I was booked to compare a night of 1950s and 60s British public information films oh. at the uh, at the something uh, what's it called the the, uh, the something uh, festival in the Yorkshire Dales right. near Apple Tree Wick yeah. uh, and the Grassington Festival is that it? Possibly that's round that, that, that way right? yeah, yeah. sounds it about is. right I was, booked, I was booked to talk at the Grassington Festival and I said, can I do my specialist subject of 1950s and 60s public information films? And they said, yeah, sure. Somebody found out I was speaking and assumed. Yeah. It's going to be about motorbikes, of course. Right. That, that I lived by bread alone. <laughs> and didn't, and that, and that I wasn't, unfortunately for them, one-dimensional. <laughs> and imagine how disappointed they were. <laughs> of course, the irony being that, that I'll never forget that night, because it was the first time I'd met somebody who left halfway through the trip and came up to me and said, I'm not staying because you're not talking about motorbikes. And then all I could think was, what on earth is it like being married to you? (laughs) (laughs) So I wanted to get back to Ewan and Charlie. Oh, great. What? (laughs) Why? Because you know, I love love them. You know that. (laughs) I didn't say why. Oh, did Noel say why? I said why. Noel said why, yeah. Do you know, and do you know why? Because basically I, it was coming up to my 40th birthday when, when The Long Way Round came on. And my wife is a big Ewan McGregor fan. I've told this story before on an earlier Who podcast. Is well, he's great. He's great. So well, people from like Star Wars films, they don't particularly like him. But that's another story. <laughs> and she loved him. And she, we watched The Long Way Round and we 
really enjoyed it. And she said to me, you've, you know, you've always wanted to get your motorbike license. Why don't you get it sorted? And basically I went, yeah, booked it the next day. And, uh, you know, haven't looked wow. back since. So I've got a certain soft spot for him. Were you involved in the long way round before yeah. it? What, what, I mean, are you happy to talk about that? Uh, I'm bored of talking about it. Hey, oh, I've never heard you no, talk no. about it before. I want to know what you did and then what went wrong. In one in one sentence, in one sentence, then we'll move on. From I want to I want to talk about it at length. I don't yeah, want to talk for the about next it. hour. I, I would more, I'd rather talk about it talk about it at length with you in another setting when we weren't it's recording too, <laughs> conversation. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I'd you know, and I'd and I, what I'd rather do is write you a list of fifteen questions to ask Charlie Ball. <laughs> He does. He that he doesn't normally get asked. Yeah, yeah. We could do that. Now, that could be. Yeah. That could be how we handle this. But <laughs> it's too. It's too depressing for mm. me. Really, it'd be like yeah. getting to talk talk about a bereavement or something. Yeah, yeah that's I would fine. actually rather talk about my dad dying. Than <laughs> wow. Use my free time to be talking about. Yeah, McGregor and Charlie Ball. Yeah, I have, yeah, I, right. yeah, I've got better things to do. I was yeah. going to say that's <laughs> fine. We'll edit this bit out, but I'm going to leave that bit in because I like that bit. <laughs> do you still have? I know you had terrible luck with 350s getting stolen. Do you have any DRs left? Do you? No, they were all stolen. I've owned, oh. I've owned, um, I'd say about eight DR 350s, and every single one was stolen. It's heartbreaking to think that they're out there and people don't know the providence of them anymore. Yeah. That's terrible, isn't it? Yeah. It's highly unlikely that somebody is looking at it at like a piece of art and saying, "That's the bike." Yeah. And the tanks, yeah. the tanks were handmade for us. That's, I mean, that that is another. That's a, that to me is a great, a great um, uh, Hugh McGregor yeah. parallel. They, you know, they they get paid to do a trip. Yeah, they get, they make more money than anybody has ever seen in their life, just from a, the book advance for a book they didn't write. Mm. They then become basically the patron saints of motorcycling for a trip that it that probably will be analysed as being possibly the least adventurous thing that any man has ever done in terms of a step into the unknown. Yeah. And then at the end of it, I think one of their bikes was sold, you know, and, and notionally money was given to charity or something like that, you know. And then our story is like the exact opposite of that. <laughs> you know, these losers go off on this trip that financially cripples them yeah. for the rest of their lives, really. Yeah. And then the spend years trying to get the film made which is so difficult to do when you're a member of the public to get you know, to get it on television back in those days it was incredibly difficult and an, yeah. and, and a massive effort to get that film on television and I mean, uh, and then it, while we were doing that within weeks of getting back to england three of the bikes were stolen no never to be seen again it's just you know you, you couldn't ask for two two stories that were more utterly you know the the glory, the the way around the glory, the, mm-hmm. the prestige, the the everything's amazing about it. Everything's great, and then our kind of like pathetic, <laughs> pathetic version <laughs> that, pre, that ironically preceded it. You know. And do you feel sort of? Did you feel quite satiated in terms of long distance travel? Have you ever wanted to do another trip as big no, as that? No, I'm the least. I'm not I'm the least bit interested in long distance motorcycling, but I would. If you know, if I was um, dictator, I would insist everybody uh, motorcycle around the world uh, before they were before they were allowed to get married. That would be my um, 
<laughs> criteria. Does everyone from the trip still ride a motorcycle? No. Or really? No, oh, that's interesting. Got you know, got married, had kids. Yeah. Yeah. Let's let's go back a step then. So, how did you get into biking? Were you because I I sense you may have been some kind of an adventurer before you were a biker. No, I've never been an adventurer. I'm a member of the public. I'm absolutely not adventurous, nor am I an adventurer. No, I just like uh, normal people. My older brother rode a motorbike. It was the seventies. He looked cool. It just seemed obvious when you had a sit sat on the back of his bike, and he gave me took me to school once. And that was like, this is amazing. Yeah. And then, as you know, my parents had were obviously anti-motorcycle, like so many people's. And I did, but I didn't have the, you know, I'm so jealous of the people who grew up on farms and, and got put on motorbikes by their dads. Yeah. Like that. I think I was very, um, I like, I was an early BMX person in, let's say, between about 1972 and 1976, when you, there was no such thing as a BMX bike. But my dad got me a bicycle from America that had big profile tires, uh, not as big as a, what we'd now call a fat bike, but what we'd, what we'd now call BMX tires. Compared to in Britain, obviously all bicycle tires were normal sized. Yeah. And he got me this bicycle and I turned it into a, uh, I used it to do only jumps. And I was obsessed with <laughs> Evil Knievel. I had the toy and everything, but really obsessed with Evil Knievel. I went to um, Wembley. I saw the jump at Wembley. For my, it was my birthday present treat. Me and a couple of mates from school. My I, dad took I love that story because he came over and they hadn't done the calculations right and he knew it, that jump that he was trying to do was impossible, so he knew he was going to crash. I disagree, Clive. Is that not the right jump? I might not have the information that you've got, but, but if you watch it, if you watch the film of it again and again and again, it was. I just put it down to being a slightly awkward landing and his perennial problem of the ramp being... You know, not at the right, not at the right angle. He did, he did the distance, but he did. He landed on the flat because they knew they weren't going to do it. So he put an extra bit of flat bit across uh, across the last couple of buses, I believe. Yeah. So, so he knew he wasn't going to make the down ramp. So they extended the ramp over the buses, and I think because he landed on the flat, he crashed anyway. Yeah, that you know bounced, you know, the suspension just threw him straight back in the air, didn't he? How old were you then, Austin, when you went to see that? Oh, I can't. Well, I, I, I think it was actually about what seventy seven, something right. like that. So let's say I was 10. But how was it for all the sort of people around well, the age of 10? Of course, it happened so quickly. Yeah. And the other thing that's not clear, unless you were there, is that there was two hours of relatively uninteresting support acts. Well, like say, how, did, how did they make it into a show? What else did they do? There was a, uh, an old man who did that thing where he dives off a tower and does a belly flop landing in a child's paddling pool. And that was, uh, because it was at Wembley, you were by definition far away from everything. (laughs) But but the the old man doing the belly flop stunt was right in front of us. That was insane. I couldn't believe my eyes. And he was wearing a pair of old cowboy film style long johns and, uh, you know, um, combination undergarments. You know, what we'd we'd call long johns and a a thermal vest, white ones. But they didn't look like they were special stunt clothes. They looked like his actual underwear. And then um, then there was somebody else who did, I can't remember what it was, there was some juggling or something like that. Maybe someone was doing some tumbling. It was a different time, different times. Like circus style stuff. And then Kadiva came out and he did the wheelies. He just wheelied up and down the side of the of the of what we what would be like the athletics track or the yeah. or the speedway track, and that was great. And then the and then when the jump came, he did like something mad, you know, like six dry runs to build tension, you know, and then turned around at the end, 
uh, and then really finally, I would, I mean, I wouldn't remember any of it if I hadn't been able to watch on YouTube the yeah. footage of the. Yeah. But it's almost, it's almost akin to being on the grassy knoll, isn't it? In terms of history mm. for a motorcyclist. <laughs> for, yeah. for men of our age anyway. Yeah. yeah. And it was, and you know, of course, if we're going to talk about authenticity, it's, you know, it's the real thing. Yeah. It yeah. was, it, it, if I went to Nitro Circus and watched them doing what they do, it, I just don't feel aroused. Yeah. Even when you see something groundbreaking, let's say like a double back somersault on a dirt bike, you know they tr- they were able to train for it. Yeah, the jeopardy's not there, is it really? No. 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 I, I, I reckon I could do a double black backflip on a dirt bike <laughs> with with the tr- with the with the training and the expertise that's available. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, if I, I sat, you know, if, if I had something, I had somebody who knew who could help me do it. But what Knievel did was just was was just ins- was 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 truly irresponsible. But then on and the that, night, so but the crash happens, and then all the all the you all shuffle out crying. Well, when he said he's never going to jump again, and also I I tell you what I never forget about that talk that that show was he um uh, before the before the, uh, the jump he came up and he said right I want to talk to you about um, narcotics. And I remembered what a, what a nerve. Not knowing what that meant at all, and from the context, I couldn't work it out either. I was sufficiently clean living from a, yeah. a drug free home <laughs> that I didn't <laughs> know what he was talking about. And and he had this. Do you know what? Do you know what his analogy is? Do you guys know this story? No, because no. I, I think he used to do it at a lot of shows. Given that he was like essentially an alcoholic, <laughs> just so brilliant. Um, but he had this, he said, he said, you know, you might get to, especially he says there's a lot of youngsters in the audience and it's great to see you here today, but you might get off of narcotics. He goes, let me tell you something. Every year I go to the Indy 500. I love going to the Indy 500. Every year there's somebody there who tricks out their car, fits it out with nitrous, and they put illegal substances in their gasoline to give them the extra, to give them the extra oomph for the extra power. And it does. It gives them the extra oomph and the extra power, and they go faster than ever. Lap after lap after lap, they go faster than ever. But then, just towards the end of the race, they blow all to hell. <laughs> that's what will happen when you take narcotics. It feels good. You're at the front. You're, you're ahead of everyone, but then you blow all to hell. Stay away from narcotics. I just, uh, even when he said that, I still didn't, because I wasn't sure, because I, I didn't understand the racing fuel analogy either. I was too young for that. Yeah. Too young for everything. Too young for the yeah. message. <laughs> and no, I just no. love, love this idea that this guy's about to do this really badly thought through jump. And let's say Clive's right, and and that they had one bus too many. Yeah. And then he's lecturing you on safety. <laughs> <laughs> Ride safe, kids. Yeah, so that was, you know, it was the 70s. My older brother had a motorbike. I wanted to get one. I wasn't allowed to. And I had to wait until I got to university and then secretly bought an MZTS 125, which I think under EU law would not be allowed to be described as a motorbike. It was so <laughs> awful. Just useless, <laughs> yeah. uselessly in, uh, um, inefficient. That would be a two-stroke motorcycle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just, you know, it only ran about a quarter of the time I owned it. Yeah. <laughs> it was hopeless, <laughs> hopeless, and really, it was kind of building. Of course, the seeds of the long distance travelling really came from my brother Gerald, who, who, as a matter of course, during the eighties, let's say from the mid eighties, because he's nine years older than me, he was always obviously nine years ahead of me. 
he is a bit of a lone wolf and a, and a, a natural iron butt person. Only needs um, cigarettes and coffee and then yeah. and alcohol to keep going. Doesn't need rest or creature comforts like the rest of us. And he, uh, during the eighties, he would get he, he, he would get on his motorbike and he would drive as far as he could in his three weeks of holidays from the railways. So he, he uh, sometimes he did that in America. He'd fly to America, get hold of a motorbike from somewhere, and do these insane. He'd be riding six hundred miles a day every day on tarmac. Not really even doing anything. Just one of those people who was who who the act of motorcycling itself was that was the catharsis. Yeah. And so I didn't want to do that at all, but he was just there. And so because he was the older brother, everything kind of like he was the filter that everything went through. And and eventually he said, Come on, let's go to uh let's go to Morocco and back. So I did that. He he kind of kidnapped me. Um the day after I left my course at Sandhurst. I had two weeks of, of leave and I went to, to my mum and dad's house, obviously. And, um, and he said, and he, and he told me, we're going to go, I'm going to take you away on the motorway. And we went two up on his FJ 1200 around down through France and Spain, around Morocco, came back, just tarmac out the whole way. And, um, was Gerald working on the railways at this point? Yeah, he was working at Bournemouth then. Yeah. Bournemouth railway station. And, um, so that was two up. That was quite boring, but I think, uh, but he, uh, we took turns riding, Two times driving sort of thing. We um, camped out a bit every now and then. We had no catering equipment, so we didn't eat. We never, we never, we never rough camped properly, which would have been great fun. But just, I'm just amazed at how all the things that I now take as a given in my, dare I call it, on the tours that I run in the Pyrenees, everything we do on those tours, I didn't do myself. It took me decades to work out what. I would suggest is a really good template for a great week of, of trail riding and rough camping and stuff like that. It's, it was not obvious. It was a massive process of iteration, trip after trip after trip. I would even say on Mondo Enduro, we were, I was six months into Mondo Enduro, 180 days living on the road, rough camping, South Carolina, everything like that, and still hadn't quite worked out what the, what the template was, yeah. what the formula was. If we'd, Kept stayed with Gerald's template. It would have just been like these. We'd we'd have gone. We'd have got. We'd have emigrated to America and done Iron Butt rallies. That's what. That's where he wanted it to end up, sort of thing. And then we did this trip around Eastern Europe in 1990 or 1991. That's and that changed everything. Once we'd seen. Once we did a long trip, and in the on the trip we discovered, let's call it, you know, other cultures that were different from our own, and then that was the light bulb moment when we thought wait a minute the places we are are far more interesting than the act of motorcycling itself and that's when Mondo Enduro was born I think anyone who hasn't read it I would urge them to buy it and read it it's a wonderful it's a it's a, it's a sort of a diary format isn't it it is a diary it's it's, yeah. it's um I, well, not, I, can give, I can give you a miniature a miniature long around story long around happened came out and Bonnie Complete coincidence or chance, not coincidence, but complete chance. I was at a party with a friend of mine who was a big noise in journalism in London. He was the former editor of the Guardian Guide, you know, the little A5 colour, um, you know, what's on guide that came with um, the Guardian on at the weekend. And a friend of his was the head of uh, acquisitions at a big publishing company who I won't name to avoid embarrassing anyone. And my friend introduced me to this other guy, to his friend, the, uh, the head of acquisitions, 
and with the line, oh, here's Austin. He, uh, this is Austin. He rides a motorbike. And this other guy said, oh, yeah. Oh, I've, I've got some, uh, I've got a, a, a treatment for a book by this actor, Ewan McGregor, who's just, who's um, done this, this trip. Yeah, we pulled out of the uh, the bidding war for it when we got to an advance of six hundred thousand wow. pounds. So the advance that was they did get was obviously definitely more than six hundred thousand yeah. quid. Yeah, and they hadn't, you know, they not only did they not write it, yeah. you know, they weren't go- even going to write it. <laughs> and um, so that was a bit. Uh, I had that kind of uh, totally by chance. I had that experience. In other words, I was the only person in that party in that room in Camden Town who owned who had a motorbike license. I wasn't in a motorbike motorbike community. I was in a dare I say a London metrosexual uh, media <laughs> community. And then the thing that happened then was that I got an email from a guy saying, "Hi, I run a publishing company in Scotland. Is there a Mondo Enduro book?" I said, no, strangely enough, we, we, the guy who was the actual journalist, the actual writer on the trip, Charlie Penty, Chas Penty, he was going to, he tried to get the book published back in, um, you know, uh, 96. Nobody would touch it. Had you all set out writing diaries? Were you all just diary writers or had you set out with the intention of coming up with a journal at the end of all the diaries amalgamated together? It was Gerald's idea. Again, Gerald was obsessed with the idea of recording the hard data of how many miles we went each day and where we started and where we finished. So he wanted diary entries that were essentially a sentence for each day. And then we start, then people started kind of like kidnapping the diary and writing a bit more. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then because actually everybody on the crew except Gerald could string a sentence together. <laughs> it then became a thing. The di- writing the diary yeah. became actually, of course, our therapy. Yeah. And you yeah. went off on your own and you got a beer and you sat, away, you went away from the rest of the others, sat under a tree and started writing the diary. So that very quickly, within within two weeks, the diary was was a, had took on a life of its own. Yeah. The seven of us, we each wrote um, the same day of the week. You know, I was writing Tuesdays. So there was never there was, ne- there was never a point where you got to the end of two or three days and we realised oh no one's written the diary no 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 the di- and and also very quickly because there was because there were seven of us the other jobs that we had to take care of communally the other six would do and would and would leave the diary writer at every moment in the day we'd stop for a morning coffee somewhere make a you know make a brew ourselves on the stove the diary writer would go and sit on his own and start writing up what had happened in that first three hours the discipline was extraordinary. Yeah, and so well, the, the last bit of this, that, that story is that this bloke phoned me up, uh, emailed me. And he said, "Do you want to? Is there a Monday Jura book?" I said, "No, we've tried to publish one, but failed." And uh, we were chatting, and he said, "I've seen the TV show, and I've just watched this Long Way Round thing." And he said, "The difference between Monday Jura and Long Way Round is is chalk and cheese. Yet they're the same thing, but they're not the same thing." <laughs> and I said, yeah, we have, you have to ask to tell me about it. <laughs> but, uh, I said, I definitely know that. <laughs> and he said, he said, well, I've got a publishing company. Do you think you could write a book? I said, oh, God, no way. You know, I'm a, I'm a full-time teacher. I'm working to pay off the debts from Terra Circa by this stage. You know, I was, yeah. I'd only been back from that trip about three years. I was still paying for Terra Circa. I said, there's no way I'm, I'm writing a book. And I, and I think Chaz, who was the proper author, he lives in Madrid now. He's got two small children. He, you know, he doesn't want to be writing a book. And so that was it. I said, um, and, and I can't remember exactly what happened, but he's, I said, yeah, we just got the diaries and that's it. And, and that's when this guy, this guy 
His ears pricked up. He goes, what do you mean the diaries? He says, we wrote a diary every day. He goes, oh, how much? Like I said, a couple of sentences. He says, no, we wrote about a thousand words every day. He goes, what? I said, yes. Yeah, sorry, I said, I, I should have mentioned this. Yeah, there's, there's a quarter of a million words already written <laughs> about Mondo Maduro. He goes, can you send me these diaries? I said, yeah, all right then. No, I and I, they were just it's an, in a cup, in a shoebox under my bed. So I sent him the diaries, and he, about three he, days later, he emailed me back. He says, he says, this is it. This is the book. We just printed yeah. it like it is. No change anything. So it wasn't really, it wasn't heavily edited or edited at all, or abridged. Only to, or, remove, no? um, only to remove spelling mistakes and a few factual errors where we got the names of towns, we spelt the names of towns wrong and stuff like that. So the, um, all this, I think there's a lot of interesting things about Modern Jura, but one of them is that when you read that book, you're reading a book that was never meant to be read by anyone. We just wrote it. There was a small contract whereby we said to our parents, we're not going to write letters home. It's going to be too difficult. But what we will do is we'll write the diary and we'll send that home. And then my, we sent it to my mum and dad in Bournemouth. And then they sent it to the next set of parents. And there was a, like a chain letter. And then the parents got it and they read like 30, 40 days of, of what we'd been up to. And then they waited like another three months for the next volume of the diary to arrive. They were, <laughs> they were that thick. You know, they were A5, 100 pages. And so it was, it was just written for our parents. So that's why there was no bad language in it. And there was no references to sex. <laughs> or or uh, there was no references to any excessive behavior. Now, my, both my parents have died in the last um, five years. So now I could write the real, the real <laughs> story. Of Monodro, but, the, you know, but now that I'm married, I can't do that. Either. Yeah. <laughs> but it was, of course, just a load of guys on the road. Trying, it's, an, trying, it's an amazing read. It's girls to have fun. Yeah, it's one of the few books I've read where I was get, getting towards the end. I was kind of panicking. It's, it's going to end. I don't want this book to end. I was gutted when I'd finished it. Is it still in print? Can people still buy it, Austin? No. Can't so, I've just had a quick search on Amazon, and you can get it for 38 quid on Amazon. I wonder if you can. If you try and buy that, they might, that might not even exist. I've, mm-hmm. uh, somebody, somebody investigated this for me. It gets posted there. Somebody, somebody saw it for sale the other day for like 150 quid, a second-hand one. It was mad. I keep meaning. It's on my list of things to do is to is – to, is to re-publish uh, it, especially now that you can do that so easily. With yeah. you know, with, but it's, I'm just I'm too busy doing other things, and, yeah. uh, and I'd like to put it I'd like to put it out again. I think it I I read bits of it every now and then. Actually, I haven't even got a copy of it. I've only got the original diaries. I haven't got a copy of the book. Would you believe? And but but when I read the diaries, especially in the light of what's happened really since Long Way Round and the Adventure Bike explosion, I read it. I just think, oh, fuck, you know, this is amazing. I cannot believe I was I was one of these guys doing this. I cannot, you know. It, 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 I think it's incredible. I'll I'll sign my copy and send it to you. <laughs> I'm keeping mine. You can get, you get thirty eight quid for it. Well, I was going to ask about you're obviously quite busy with with all the various events that 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 you have going, and we will talk about those in a bit. But do you get a chance to to ride now for pleasure? I don't. I'm not one of these people who would like drive their motorbike on a sunny day to uh, a tea wagon and have a cup of tea and then drive home. I would never do that. I haven't got enough time for that. But because I do so much motorcycling on my trips in Spain and so much motorcycling preparing the the Vins Navigation event, which is like, that takes like three weeks of incredibly intense, aggressive trail riding. I'd have been like, get out of my way! (laughs) (laughs) Really long, busy days in the saddle over new, fresh territory with the maps, constantly working the maps, working an area, 
trying to find every single trail that exists in a given 800 square mile air, you know, part of the Pyrenees. That's by the end of that, I do, you know, I'm do, I go out to spend twice a year to do that, you know. So I'm doing eight, nine, ten weeks of non-stop trail riding. So a lot of the rest of the year, uh, I'm often not trail riding. Not because I'm sick of it, but I've got there's other things I really want to do, and I can't I can't spend I can't I can't make trail riding my only hobby. What first drew What first drew you to the Pyrenees? Oh, so very specifically, an article in Trail Bike Magazine in about. Oh, hang on, let me just think. Uh, in about 1999, that uh, where they sent their or Simon Melville, whoever it was, they sent a correspondent out to Moto Venturas, who were based in Andorra, and they went trail riding for a day, and the pictures were mind blowing. And me and my brother had been taking groups of mates out to Almeria to ride around where they made the westerns. I was you know, obsessed with spaghetti westerns, so it was a double whammy to go trail riding around down a valley. That Clint Eastwood had ridden down on a horse <laughs> in a western was like it was. I was just like covered in semen by the end of it. And, uh, Your own, so, presumably, or yeah. somebody else's? No, it's, it was a team building trip. <laughs> and, uh, so, so that's where we used to go for our for our trail riding. And also, we hadn't really discovered trail riding in the UK. I wasn't then. I think 90, 1997, We did our first one of these trips. I wasn't in the TRF. I didn't know the TRF existed. I didn't know trail riding existed. And I mean, honestly thought if you wanted to ride a motorbike across some rough country, you probably had to go to a desert in Spain to do it. I didn't know that you could do that in England. So we were, we were already going as far as Almeria to go trail riding. And then when I found out that you could go to the Pyrenees and we saw these incredible pictures in Trail Bound Magazine, that was, that was the moment. Absolutely that exact article was when we used to drive through the Pyrenees cursing at the tunnels and the wiggly roads and all that. It never occurred to us that the area was the most bloody obvious thing of all was that Spain is crisscrossed with with like 10 times as many trails as it has miles of tarmac. That ratio, that level of of network. And we didn't realize we were driving past this network, driving through this network on tarmac roads to get to an actual desert. We thought it never, it, we didn't realize that you could ride along an old farmer's trail. We thought you had to go to a dry river valley that was used in a west. <laughs> so stupid. Yeah. Well, I needed a mentor. I needed a yeah. mentor so much. Yeah. <laughs> well, tell us about the trips that you've got coming up because we're getting into riding season, presumably, for your stuff. Yeah, I do three weeks in May, June, and then we do about four weeks in September. So now after, let's say, let's say 20, 24 years of going to the Pyrenees every year has made me an expert on the area. I know every single hotel, gas station, supermarket. I know more trails in the Pyrenees than anybody in the, uh, in the world, I think. I know more than Spanish people do because my experience out there is that Spanish dirt bikers work their own area. But they don't do what I do, which is go to different areas, hundreds of miles apart, move in to a building (laughs) and then spend the next three weeks aggressively riding every single trail that's on the map. And then and then using and now, you know, that's what we used to do in the old days. Now that we've got Google Earth and GPS is we can find trails that aren't on the map, which is, of course, the great dream. So, yeah, I started I started the the map reading thing the events about 17 years ago, the Variable Intensity Navigation Challenge event. 
and I just wanted to the school teacher in me. I once I discovered how extraordinary the the Catalan Pyrenees are, I uh, and I was thoroughly enjoying the map reading. That was the whole thing. All the motorcycle trips around the world, you never have to map read at all, not properly. You know, you just go, you just go tarmac the whole time. But out in the Pyrenees, we had, we got these old crappy. Um, Spanish army maps from uh, Stanford's in uh, Covent Garden. Hooray for them. They're still going. Go get your maps from them. And we got these maps mar- and, and would mark them up looking looking for trails. Just We'd l- stare at the map trying to find a bl- little black line that went from one place to another. And that was it. And we would spend hours and hours, me and my brother Gerald and a few other mates, we'd just sit there with these maps for hours on end in the spring and then, and then we'd we'd have like six or seven or ten of these maps, make a little schematic, do a little hand-drawn thing, and then we'd drive out in the van with the bikes on the trailers, uh, park the van, and then we'd try and ride the first trail that was on the map. And most of the time, it worked. Sometimes it was it was a disaster because the map was wrong. Yeah. But when it worked, the, the combination of trail riding and map reading was a new high for me. And I had by then started trail riding in the UK. I'd become a member of the TRF, like a member of the TRF. And so I was doing my English trail riding, my British trail riding and loving it, but invariably was guided by a local uh, expert who would who would just take me and my mates off on a trip. We'd have a brilliant time. Obviously, we love it, love the trail riding. Everything's great. But the real, the Class A stuff was the self-navigation <laughs> in the Pyrenees, the trail riding plus the map reading. That's, so that's... Uh, I was loving that so much. Had this idea of an orienteering event, and I couldn't, I couldn't think how to do it. And I thought, well, there's no such thing as motorcycle orienteering. How's that going to work? Uh, there's no organisation that does something like this. I can't, I can't go and offer to help somebody else organise something like this for them. Dare I say it? Like a look, if you look at the story of my life, I have to do it myself. Yeah. There was, there was no one to turn to, so I created my own map reading event <laughs> and wrote a letter. Me and Lois wrote a paper letter to every single person that we knew with a motorbike license in the spring of uh, of, of like 2004 or 2005 one of those one of those years 2005 and um, and we said we've we've got this idea for a, for a, for a map reading event we've set up a load of checkpoints in Spain and they're just sitting there and would you like to do it and of those we sent the letter to 82 people and 64 wow. of them turned up from, wow. and they're all friends of ours. They were all, you know, you, some, some people went out and bought dirt bikes just to do it. Yeah. And instead of, it's weird because instead of it being like seven people or 12 people, the response from our mates was astonishing. And it, and so we marketed it as our, you know, uh, we'd, we'd done the first reconnaissance on honeymoon. So we marketed it as a honeymoon, our first anniversary honeymoon party. And all these people came out. We booked a hotel in Spain and, and they came and did this thing. And uh, there were 32 checkpoints. I'll never forget that. Now there's 88 over a much bigger area. It's just, you know, it's a much more, di- it's much more difficult now <laughs> than it used to be. And, um, and everyone loved it. And me and Lois just sat at the hotel. It's kind of literally like not so much waiting for the phone to ring, but just waiting yeah. for them to come back and yeah. hoping that they'd come back and say, that was insane. That was like such one of the best things I've ever done. And without blowing my trouble too much, that, that is exactly the reaction we got. They loved it. And so we said, we all got pissed that night. And then I said something like, I did a speech at the end, say, thanks for coming, everyone. This is great. Uh, my marriage has lasted a year. 
thank you, Lois, for being my trail riding companion. I would never have done this without her. I'd never had the time off, you know, away from my wife to do it on my own, set it all up on my own. Thank you so much, sweetheart. And then I sort of said, I had too much booze. And I said, should we do this again next year? And everyone cheered. <laughs> and that was it. So I was like, oh, my God. So we, we, so we had to kind of, it was a, lot, it was a long yeah. story. We had to kind of like yeah. create another one of these events in a different place yeah. in time for next year. And then that was it. And it's that was that was pretty much, what, 18 years ago. I remember being captivated by the sort of eight millimeter promotional films you did of it. <laughs> they, they just looked absolutely dreamy. Before I'd even been to the Prunies, I just thought that looks amazing. We shot a lot of Super Eight. I was in the in, in the in the 90s, uh, in the 90s and the early noughties, I was shooting. I was shooting my entire life on Super Eight. I've got tons of Super Eight of those years of everything: uh, barbecues, parties, school days, sports days. It's um, it's a bit mad, really. Yeah. It's completely, it's completely, it's already a format that's 40 years behind the times. Yeah. In, but it, but the, with those bikes and open-faced helmets, it really looked great, didn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was great. It was great yeah. fun. So how does it work then? So people stay at a hotel and then you just head out and back in a day to find as many yeah, of, yeah. The, of the GPS points as you can, but you without GPS. There's, 80, there's, there's 88 checkpoints spread over about 800 square miles. We all stay at a hotel kind of in the middle of the map. You get sent the maps and the checkpoint booklet that says where all the checkpoints are eight weeks before the event. And the idea is that in the, normally it's a two day event, but this year it's a three day event because the, um, there's so many more trails this year. The experience has shown that uh, it's the only motorcycle event that I know of where the organizers set it up so that there's no possibility of you completing the project. So a big part of the game is for you to decide, well, what can we do and what sh- should we do? Uh, what, what route should we choose to make it the most effective? So I set up that all of the um, the trails are a big spaghetti jumble. You know, it, it looks it's a bit, the, the trail network's meant to look like a London Underground map. That was always my inspiration. And, you know, that, that thing where people try and go to every London Underground station in a, de- in a day. That was that was always at the front of my mind of I want to replicate that, but on motorbikes in the Pyrenees. And um, and so when you get the map, you are overwhelmed by the, by what's on offer. But you have to sit down with your teammates and say, well, what actually are we going to do? Then throw into the mix that there's obviously only petrol in certain places. Obviously, it's not that far away, but you need to legislate for that. And also the map is wrong. A lot of the time. So when you get the amongst the things that you get sent before the map, the event is all of the mistakes on the map, and I and I create correct versions of all the little bits of the map that are wrong, and I show you what it is now at the moment, and then I show you what it should be. So all the places that I get lost because the map's wrong, you get given all of them, so you never get lost. That's the idea, and that is a massive amount of information. Once again, you don't need all of it, but you've got to work out what route you're going to do, maybe so as to minimise the number of places where the map's wrong on your particular itinerary. Are people navigating completely by map or are they making yeah. a roadbook from it? Or So last year, or no, two years ago, was the first time that we allowed GPS. My, my business partner, Di Jones, had been bending my ear about this and he, he, he virtually begged <laughs> to have a GPS category for the people who just didn't they wanted to do the trail riding but they didn't they weren't interested in the map reading and i of course couldn't believe that there was such a person <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 that there was a person who didn't relish the map reading yeah, as, yeah. as actually that's the real that's the difficult thing the trail riding is the, the easy bit the map readings the the um, you know the real crux of it anyway so we created the, the gps version 
uh, two years ago. And that, and, that, and but you still have to program your own routes into your GPS. Yeah. We don't give you the GPS plots. Your right. line is that only about one in 10, one in 20, one in tw- only about one in 20 of the teams opt for GPS. Oh, interesting. 19 out of the 20 teams Obviously, they've got some self-respect, so they don't. Yeah. Not, you know, like in the first year we did it, there was only one team enter the GPS section, and everybody else was map only. Yeah. And like, and I, you know, they got they came up, they got the they got a bottle of wine or something for winning it, and all they had to do was, was of course, get to the end of the day, and they'd won. But then, you know, then they were just like booed off the stage. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, but of course, you know, we want, I mean, I want people to go out there and, in, and enjoy it. I'm, you know, I'm just obsessed with sharing it. And there's enough room out there. There's enough, there's enough room and there's enough space to share it and not, and it, and it not be a problem at all. Are you still doing a twin shock version then of this? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's, you know, with the people who do that, that's a huge thing. And they are always have the maddest bikes. Yeah. What do you, you know, use on that event? I, well, I don't take part. I don't. I create it, but I don't compete. Ah, right. I thought you were in it as well. No, I, I did it one year. There was a team from Gloucestershire who I thought were cheating, uh, and I thought they were coming out early and pre-riding the trails and picking up the answers from the from the checkpoints early, and then submitting points total at the end of the of the event that was inflated and just not possible. So I, I entered one year with Nick Plum, the, the Paris Dakar racer. He was my partner, and um, he crashed. I didn't, <clears throat> and uh, his chain snapped, and I had to repair it with my staff. I once went riding with Nick Plum, and he crashed, and I didn't. Yeah. Oh, yeah. you never crashed, though, do you, Noel? No, I never <laughs> crashed. <laughs> <laughs> I crashed since 1986. But I might add that Nick Plum is most definitely a thousand times the rider yeah. I am, and he'll he'll be the first to, to agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> so wh- when do these events take place, and how do people book onto them? Well, you go to austinvince.com, and it's all there. Everything in my whole motorcycle world is there. So the navigation event, the Vince, and Twin Shot Trail Finder, they have the same entry form type thing. The event takes place once a year, and this year it's 12th, 13th, 14th of September. It's, and that's Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I've booked this enormous resort thing, which used to be a medieval village. Fell into uh, disrepair when the local valley was dammed and flooded. Everyone lost their fields. The village was abandoned. And then the government stepped in and restored it and turned it into a kind of like four hotel complex. So part of it used to be a monastery as well. An amazing, amazing place. Where also, the, the Vince moves around the Pyrenees every year on a nine-year rotation. So if you did it every year... Um, consecutively in the 10th year you'd be doing the one that you did in the first year sort of thing yeah so it's uh, it happens in um in mid-september there's 112 people entered for it at the moment teams i'm very proud to say from denmark holland germany obviously uk one usa team and one italian team so that's my um uh, my dream was to kind of like help to, to try and turn it into like a kind of festival of tet I wanted all the, my, uh, if I could speak freely, I wanted all the tetters, all the people that think the tet's good, get the tet. I wanted them to tet their way to the Vince, do the Vince, and then tet their way home. It was like, just, just like having a big, and of course it's a massive piss up, you know, it's, it's meant to be, it was always, always meant to be a huge party with a map reading event in the middle of it, yeah. sort of thing, you know. I, I love the fact that tet's now become a verb. To tet, I tet, oh, yeah. tet, he, she, it, tet's. <laughs> You tet, you tet, they tet. <laughs> <laughs> How do you get down to Spain? Do you ever ride down or do you always Yeah, I, I, 
sometimes I go with my um, business partner, Di Jones, in his van. It works out that way. Other times I go, I need, I need to go before him or I need to go after him. And so I just ride out on the CRF250L with my luggage. It's a joy. I love riding out. The, do, do, do you a road it down or do you take the tolls or avoid oh, no. if it's if it's not raining if it's raining i'll go on the motorway and just sit there like you know like a courier yeah. just sit there and just grind it out it's awful there's no just no there's no way you can sugarcoat that but if it's mm. not raining i'm on the smallest roads i can lay my hands on yeah and i kind of and i've got this old spiral bound atlas and i mark with a felt you know a highlighter pen my route and i kind of every year i do a different route do you ever yeah. ride with a sat nav on the bike I did once last, yeah. uh, like uh, two years ago, I did my first ever crossing of France with a GPS. I only got, I only owned, I only bought my first GPS two years ago. So I'd never, ever, ever, and I've never used my phone as a GPS. So yeah. that was a big step for me to kind of load a route into the Garmin and follow it. I quite yeah. enjoyed it yeah. because I, I didn't, you know, you don't know, but I didn't like not knowing where I was. Yeah. I liked the, I liked the paper. I like the map. I like the spine. I like turning the pages over as we work our way across France. And I like the train spotter in me. I like colouring in the bit that I've just done. That's I have an, an elderly relative that lived in the Pyrenees, and he had an elderly friend lived in Northumberland, and he talked him into going to visit him driving down. And his elderly friend in Northumberland bought a little compass and glued it to the dash of his car. Oh yeah, and just headed south via uh, the compass in France. Yeah, but from Northumberland yeah. to, to the Pyrenees, just using the compass glued to the right. dash of his car. That's cool. I thoroughly, I heartily approve. I had a map from Stamford, so the first time I went to Morocco, and I did exactly the same thing, marked out the route and all the towns we visited, and then I lent it to somebody. I have no idea who I lent it to, but I never got oh. it back. Gutting. <laughs> can, like we talk about, can we talk about the film festival? Yeah, sure. Just the Adventure Travel Film Festival. Correct. Noel's a big fan. I've been to many film festivals of your film festivals. Oh, great. Yes. And I've no, we show one of your films at least yeah, once. Yeah. I don't know how I talked you into that. But I've you always found... You did talk me into it. <laughs> hey, listeners, just let's be clear. Noel did not talk me into showing his film. Because like, when I watched the, the, that film, I didn't know it had been made by you, Noel. I watched it. I loved it. And I thought, this is just what we need. And then I looked up on my little list who'd made it, and it was your name. And I recognised that name as a mutual friend of yeah. we have in Greg Villalobos. Yeah. And I thought, oh, that's funny. I kind of know this guy. But this is the Iceland film. It yeah, very, yeah. Uh, it was very exciting. Very exciting to be included. It's very good, though. We've talked about it before. It's an incredibly inclusive festival. That's what I've loved about it. I'm the least festival sort of person, I like to think. But I've always felt really at home at that festival. Oh, great. Well, I was going to say, one of my favourite parts of the festival, we, and this might sound a little bit strangely, is just to walk around the camping grounds and just see everybody's different outfits and just chat with people that are there. That's one of the best bits. Get up really early in the morning. I would make a cup of tea and just wander up and down. And I've met loads of people that I'm still in touch with now just from doing that little, that little tour of the, of the campsite. Good. Well, it's nice to... I, I've, I haven't been to very many rock and roll festivals, music festivals, and I went through a phase of about two years of going to enduros. Then I used to go to the Dawn to Dusk, Nick Plum's event down at Walters Arena in South Wales. For, a, for I went to like eight of them in a row in the noughties. And I didn't like the atmosphere. It was too, uh, too white van man-ish, too competitive. There was no sense of, hey, look at all of us people here doing the same thing. Yeah. We, we kind of like, we should be friends, shouldn't we, really? We've all got the same hobby. But, but that atmosphere didn't exist. And yeah. I kind of wanted to, I, with, with the Vins as well, I wanted to create a motorcycle event that felt like a party and didn't feel like some kind of rollerball, adversarial 
event where people were trying to outdo each yeah. other. Yeah. Uh, I, I, well, I, 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 I want people to make friends at my events. Yeah. And well, I think I'm really you've really to hear your story now. Yeah, well, you've really succeeded in that. And I think from the moment you arrived there and you met by what is quite obviously a volunteer, you know, that really is the, that's just an excellent start, isn't it? Adam? <laughs> As opposed to uh, somebody from HMRC. Well, it's, just, look, it's just a very homely feel to it. Yeah, absolutely. Instead of some kid with a tabard who doesn't know what's going on. Yeah. Or at the um, ABR rally, they have, last summer, they had 125 security guards. I was told by one of the security guards, how many security guards are there? There's 125 security guards here. At our festival, which is, of course, smaller, there's zero security yeah. guards. Yeah. And I am very, very proud to report that. How are we doing for time? Are you all right to carry on a little bit longer? Yeah, after? sure, sure. Yeah, because, I, I, I mean, I haven't asked any of my questions. but I never, I've, I've been doing, I've, maybe, we'll have a, maybe I can get a repeat booking. No, you, you, you've answered a lot of them anyway, so they're irrelevant. And Noel's far better at asking off the cuff questions because he has to be because he never does any preparation. So that's all right. <laughs> Did you, I tell you what, let's try this, um, these quick fire questions, either or questions. See how we get on. You don't have to just do either or. You can expand or do what you want, really. So uh-huh. so the first one, I think you've answered this already. Biker or traveller? Neither. I'm not trying to be difficult. <laughs> no, no, no. It's fine. Would, you can say what you want. I would never call myself a biker because in my mind, a biker is those guys from everywhere which way but loose. You know, leather, leather waistcoats, yeah, yeah, yeah. all that stuff. <laughs> and I would never call myself a traveller because I'm not sure even what that means, somebody who's traveling, well, that means somebody who's commuting to work is probably a, tra- a traveler. So if there's connotations of what the word traveler means, I'm not sure if I would, uh, I'd much rather, uh, I'd much rather, much rather call myself a member of the public than either a biker or a traveler. Right. They're not going to get any easier, by the way. They're all contentious. Well, they're not difficult questions. <laughs> oh, well, that's just the answer. Okay. CRF or DR? Uh, I'm afraid that's not, once again, it's not a robust question. Because now, if you offered me now a brand new uh, barn find DR350 that's obviously by definition 30 years old, never been ridden, and a brand new CRF250L, there's no competition. It's the it's the Honda CRF250L. Mm, it's a superior bike. Mm. But in its day, if you'd if you'd offered me a brand new, let's say, what XR250 or a Suzuki DR350 back in 1990, if you'd offered me that choice then. Actually, it would have been churlish to choose between them. Yeah. If it's Japanese, yeah. you'd be yourself a great bike there. Mm. Yeah. You, don't, you know, it's it's the people who don't make many motorbikes that you need to worry about. I won't start <laughs> a bushfire on the internet. But you know, somebody who's who's making a thousand motorbikes a year is not somebody I want to buy a motorbike from. It's as simple as that. Well, we've both got CRFs. In fact, one of us has got two. I have two, and we didn't quite ever get to the bottom <laughs> of that reason. But there we go. All right, here's another one: documentary or feature film. Oh, like um, I'm about to watch something. What do I choose? Is that the question? Yeah, maybe. Or which type yeah. would I rather make? Yeah, which would you rather watch, documentary or feature film? Once again, I, my answer is unhelpful because Monday to Friday I tend to watch documentaries, and at the weekend I treat myself with fiction and f- fictional feature films. So once again, you need both. You need all the four main food groups. You can't. You can't stick with one or the other. Fair enough. This one might be easier. Body armor or stiff upper lip? Oh, that, uh, I would have said stiff upper lip until I done a series of pretty serious crashes back in sort of like 2012 <laughs> i was hurting myself a lot uh, and part of the reason for that was not wearing body armor so now i wear body armor and i haven't really pro- badly hurt myself for a long time see no even austin vince wears body armor <laughs> i do now but i didn't i mean i didn't used to and i kind of got away with it for a long time do you still fall off 
Yeah, every now and then, yeah, yeah. yeah. But also, I, I'm, you know, I ride a low motorbike. I don't go very fast, but I do ride in a very rocky place in the in the Pyrenees where the stakes are quite high. If you come off, the chance of you, you know, we have a lot of broken bones at the Vince, mm-hmm. far more than like. Well, I've never been trail riding ever in the UK, and ended up with one of the group in casualty. At the Vince, we have somebody in hospital with a broken leg every year. It's all rock. And the, and the smallest, I watched a guy um, come off in front of me the other day. He was doing five miles an hour at the most. Hospital. Massive, massive, complicated, smashed up tibia. And if you'd seen it, if I showed you the film of what caused this one of this this awful injury to his leg, you'd say there's no way that. There's no way that injury and that crash are the same thing. And they were. But because it's rock. Yeah. No, there's no. Yeah, it's unforgiving. Okay. There's another one. Punk rock or rock and roll? When you say rock and roll... When you say punk rock, do you mean seventies punk rock? Yeah. Okay. Well, then I'm not. I'm not interested in that. I'm only interested. In, I'm only interested in punk rock '66. Yeah, like sort of like, let's say December '65 to early '67. That punk rock. Sonics, Whalers, Standells, Remains. Stooges fit in there somewhere? No, that's too late for me. <laughs> the reasons I obviously I, I, the Stooges are great. MC5, great, but they were late to the party, and I'm and I'm much more interested in the guys that were kind of freaking like the monks. Yeah, the monks would be the band that I'd hold up and say, look at what these guys were doing in 1966. And then and then look at John Lydon, at Johnny Rotten and St. Vicious. They look like they look like just a couple of choir boys compared to the monks. You know, and then of course, really, we need to say, well, look at look at what um, Hazel Atkins, look at Johnny but what what was Johnny Burnett doing in 1956? He was so or even you know, good Jerry Lewis. I mean, like they're, they're like, they were so, so out there. And because they've become famous, we think, oh yeah, they were mainstream. No, they weren't. They were absolute, and Elvis, absolute outsiders, outsiders. Yeah. So yeah, 70s punk rock, I was there and I didn't notice anything of any interest, frankly. But but of course, the punk rock ethic, I'm right behind. But when you say rock and roll, of course, I, I think of, I, I, to me, that would mean sun rock and roll, sun Elvis, Jerry Lee, Johnny Cash, Carl uh, Perkins. Then if you're talking about that rock and roll, listen to that all day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. I, I did a Sun Studios tour once. Cause... Uh, it's not very, it's not very long, well, is it? It's, it's, <laughs> it's amazing. It's three rooms, and you can't even go into the last room because that's that's where the big mixing desk is. You're only allowed in these two rooms. But it was like a nearly religious experience. Yeah, Absolutely rightly, brilliant. I, one of my friends got married there. I got married in Vegas by, by an Elvis. He said, hey, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. He said, hey, you guys know uh, Noel from... Uh... <laughs> it's like, no? No, this is not you. The other Noel that was in that famous band. Yeah. But yeah, it's the same one that married him, but it was like it was like a gay Nick Cave more than more than, more than Elvis, really. <laughs> Slightly disappointing, but funnier just because of that. Good. And do you do, you do music now, don't you? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm in the studio all the time. You know, like a lot of people. I was in, in bands when I was young, in my 20s. That was great. We never got signed. I was, you know, I was a full-time teacher. I didn't do the thing of giving up my job and being in the band as my job or try, trying to make being in the band as my job. I was always too cautious for that. And I regret that enormously. And the other guys, I was, I was in the band with, with Phil Alexander, who was the, you know, who at that time was working at Kerrang! and was then, would then go on to become the editor of Kerrang! So he was, he was in the music industry already, but he was, there's no way he was going to like give up his career to, 
to, to work in our band. And um, so that was all great, great fun. But then it kind of like fitted away. But then a funny thing happened when I did, uh, I did when I when we did Mondo Enduro, I was in a band called the Quakers, and we used to dress up as as uh, you know that that play the Arthur Miller play the Crucible, yeah. set, set, you know, set in the 1660s witch hunt. Yeah. Obviously, it's all about the McCarthy, <laughs> it's about the McCarthy era. All right, right. So we used to dress up as Quakers from the Crucible, and then play, as you do, then play. Uh, the set was basically Kinks, B sides, Rolling Stones, instrumentals, stuff like that. But the whole set came from between '64 and '66. We took a lot of uh, of kind of standard '60s punk songs and rewrote hard. Right. Imagine if ISIS had a Christian wing. <laughs> <laughs> who were in a, who 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 were in a band? That's what the Quakers yeah. meant to sound. And so when you went to a Quakers gig, it was you you got hectored <laughs> by me as the, as the lead singer. You got hectored for not being pious enough. Anybody with flamboyant clothing on or or hair products, something like that, you know, they were pilloried for not for, for not for deviating from the path of plain living. That was the whole idea. And the plain living extended itself into the into the music, which was of course had a heavy you know three four chord line up but the entire gig was delivered as a, a service as a church service. <laughs> it, yeah, it was good quakers were a good band and then yeah, and so when we got when we when i got back from so the quakers actually were at the top of their game when i went on modern enduro in 95 i tell you uh, uh, my a brush with celebrity who directed the film of train spot you not who wrote danny the boyle danny boyle yes danny boyle was at one of our gigs by chance, because it was a very cool club called the Frashack, and it was happening in Tottenham. It was totally underground, completely invitation only, packed out, like 700 people in th- in the three floors of this kind of converted uh, hotel. It was mental, absolutely mental. We were playing up on the top floor, all in the costumes. It cost a fortune to rent all the costumes for the, the you know, the hats and the, these yeah. incredible wigs and the funny, you know, chin beard and all the doublets and these massive, thick, you know. Danny, Danny Boyle, saw the band and he asked us to be he came up to he came up to, I'm making he said I'm Danny Boyle and that back this is like in ninety four so it's totally train spotting or whatever. And he did Shallow Grave, didn't he? Isn't that the, isn't that yeah, the whole thing? Yeah. He also did a, he did an episode of Inspector Morse which I was in and met him. Really? Yeah. Well, so we so we both <laughs> yeah. got the Danny Boyle <laughs> we, he asked us to be in his next film. We said yeah totally but then I went off on Modern Juro. Oh. That was that was the end of that. But my point is, is that when I, we got back from Modern Euro, I we I got the Quakers together and we wrote all of the music for the Modern Euro film, which was forty-eight separate tracks, including the sung theme, and it was sung by a guy called Parsley. He was one. Of, he was he was the organ player in in the Quakers. So it was it was once again. It's all to make the long way round comparison. There's I read somewhere where one of them said that uh, they were texting lyric ideas from their tent to that band, some band that was going to do the theme tune for them. I can't remember. I'm not even going to Google it. Yeah, this is, this was, this is like, you know, when you're a famous actor, you know people in famous rock bands, you know? So that's how the Long Way Round theme happened. And the Mondo Juro theme is, we fucking wrote the song, <laughs> ourselves, you know, and booked a studio time and, and learned to play instruments and recorded them. You know? <laughs> we didn't get someone else to do Excellent. it. Another question. 
These are oh, I like these. These are working out quite well. I wasn't sure whether they'd work or not, but I don't want you to think that I'm that I'm a difficult uh, customer. No, 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 no. I can't. You know, if you give me a straight choice where I know that where I know where I know which one I choose, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. And I don't want you to do that. I want you to like talk. Sushi and, yeah. versus yeah, yeah, lasagna. fish fingers. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Fifty fifties or noblies? Oh, noblies the whole time. Well, it's certainly while I'm riding a CRF 250L. If I was a street biker, I would have street tyres. Yeah, good. That's what we all say. Noblies, forget 50-50s. And, and also, the the fraction idea, you know, this, when people say 80-20, 50-50, what they don't understand, or I'll rephrase that, of course they understand, but what I think is important to point out is that um, if you're on a road trip, a long, a long road trip, but you intend to rough camp, only 1% of your day will be off-road. But that's the one percent when you need a hundred percent knoblies, and so it's because a knobbly tire can be ridden on tarmac all day, uh, and it still works, especially modern, you know, modern uh, dual pur- dual purpose tires. Yeah, like like the, I use the 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 um, uh, the Michelin Tracker used to be the Michelin AC10. Those those tires, when you go around corners on them, don't let you down. There's no sensation. Oh my God, I want a dirt bike tire. Not at all. So they're like fantastic road tires all day, certainly on a on a 250 for me. And then the second you get to the trailhead and you think, let's go up here and find somewhere to camp, they're kicking ass and taking names. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's so important to be able to get to that spot, isn't it, at night? And if it facilitates that, it's definitely worth it. I could write a book of, or I could fill a book with stories of co-riders who've had the wrong tires on and we go off at the end of the day trying to get to the, trying to find a camp spot don't know where we're going, don't know where we are, and we can't go any further because of that guy's choice of tyre. Yeah. We have to turn around and go back and come somewhere crap when, when there was somewhere amazing waiting for us up that trail uh, just because a selfish person would say, oh, no, I don't want to have nobody tyres, you know. Yeah. Don't get yeah. me going. Yeah. <laughs> we did a couple of uh, beginner's guides to trail riding, and that's what we said. Forget 50-50 tyres, just get nobblies. Just don't, no argument, just do it. And when they wear out, change them. People are going on about, oh, my God, my tyres will wear out. That's no good. Or what do you think is going to happen to them? <laughs> <laughs> You'd never leave home if you're worried about consumables wearing out, would you? You'd have to stay store your tyres. So. I, I often have this argument with Noel because he's all, it's all about miles per gallon. And I'm saying, well, if you don't want to use petrol, I can sell all your motorbikes. It's <laughs> not what motorbikes are about. What's no. your best um, MPG on the CRF? I'm getting about 80 on mine. Both of you, it's your all-time best. I Well, I don't know. I've never calculated it. You, I don't liar. Think you liar. You're obsessed no, with it. That's all you talk about, ever. <laughs> I don't calculate it because I'm I'm just more amazed at how little it takes to fill up each time that I just think, I can't believe I've been riding two days and it's cost me £12. You don't even so have I, to disturb the cobwebs in your pocket, do you? So I don't, you but I mean, you've got, a, you've got a miles per gallon on your dash, haven't you? I don't have that on a two-day. I think, I think so. the most I've ever got is about 82 on mine i've got a, a new 300 um but i've only done 400 miles on mine so it's all i was amazed to find with some pretty aggressive uh and thorough you know data number crunching that my trail riding mpg was the same as my motorway cruising mpg wow. 85 on, on both occasions well i spoke to greg greg today and he said he did a trip up into scotland on his own uh, and camped out for the night and came back and he said he was getting 100 miles per gallon mm, incredible it's good. I've never, the yeah. highest I've ever heard of that is va- validified or, or credible is 92. I'm sure your listeners will phone in with their 
outrageous stories of 250 miles from the <laughs> Greg's absolutely tiny, so he'd have just been able to hide behind the clock or something like that. <laughs> all right, last one. Two-piece or all-in-one? Well, I, I tend to be an all-in-one person at the moment. That's the question. Why? How did this happen? How did you start? How did you get into the uh, overalls? In Turkey, on Terra Circa, when we used to wear full leathers, you know, I mean, you know, separates, leather jeans and leather jacket, but it was getting too hot and it was too uncomfortable. And we, me and Dave Greenhouse on Terra Circa, we saw a shop selling overalls, so we, so we bought a pair of cotton overalls each. I'd never owned my own pair of overalls, but we put them on. Then we saw a, a haberdasher with a man sitting in the window doing alterations. So we bought some stripes and asked him to sew the stripes on. Basically thinking of that, you know, the famous um, yes. Queen Le Mans picture. Oh, I thought you were going to say the seeds were sewn at Wembley. No, not at all. Because that's, yeah, and it's leather and it's applique or it's um, aperture. You know, he has, he has, he has um, star-shaped holes cut in the, the side of the jeans with white leather behind them. So it's a different, different technique, really. And um, we had these overalls with these stripes stuck on them. And then we saw some patches for sale. We got them sewn on as well. We walked around, the two of us, in these matching overalls. And, we, and, I, and I've, never, I've never, I just felt like a million dollars. I've never felt so alive. <laughs> and uh, and I thought this is a great this is a great look and people were stop looking at us in the street you know which they never used to do wearing my really expensive leather jacket and really expensive tailored leather trousers yeah. my, my trousers and my jacket had been were hundreds and hundreds of pounds each expensively tailored and these these 20 pound overalls were head turners and then that got set in um in Tokyo on Terra Circa in in 2001 I got when I got to uh, then we got to Hawaii on the way to America, had some more stripes sewn onto them, and then it went mad. People people were coming up to me in the street saying, "Where did you get those overalls?" And I'd say, "I, I did them myself." And they're like, "What? Why? You know, can't I buy them?" So, anyway, that's that's another story. So yeah, one piece. That's where it came from. <laughs> Do you have like a, an Elton John wardrobe of the full spectrum of colours? Of yeah, yeah, yeah. I have about forty pairs of overalls. Wow. Normally, we send people that have been guests on the podcast, we normally send them a, a T-shirt, but I don't suppose you actually, you've ever worn a T-shirt, have you? No, I don't wear T-shirts, no. So, I've had specially made, just for you, yeah. a patch to sew onto your overalls, which I'll send That's, you. Yeah, is that the only one in the world? No, I've got ten of them done, it's <laughs> cheaper. Ten. You've got ten patches done? Yeah. And how, would you mind answering the question as to how much they cost? I think they're about a fiver each. So it's wow, not, that's great! Is that is that? I will absolutely guarantee that I will put that no. um, patch on my on my overalls on one set of overalls that I wear. I think it might even be. I think it's even iron on, possibly. No, don't oh, worry about that. I'll yeah. sew it on. Fantastic! Yeah, it on. I'll over sew the iron on glue. <laughs> Quickly tell me, whereabouts are you guys exactly? Is one of you near Kendall? We're both near yeah, Kendall. I'm... I'm west of Kendall, near a place called Sedba. Yeah. And Noel's, you're just north of Kendall, aren't you, Noel? Yeah. Wait a minute. Sedba's not west of Kendall. East. East, sorry. East of Kendall. Yeah. Silly you always get story, the... well, Your story doesn't check out, then, does he it? Always, yeah, he always gets those two mixed up. <laughs> I have to go west to get into Kendall. That's what it is. So. <laughs> as a child, as a keen train spotter, I was obsessed with the Settle to Colorado Railway. So I had many, many holidays 
before I was even 13, basically shuttling myself and my dad up between Settle and Carlisle. And, uh, and then weirdly, when I went to Mill Hill School, they had their own field study centre in the village of Dent. They used to take us little North London oiks up there to go caving and and, uh, and walk the Three Peaks and stuff like that and go to Ingleton and look at, at uh, Thornton Force and everything. So I had a kind of incredibly massive Yorkshire Dales part of my life as a youngster. And it uh, and of course, I, uh, I fell in love with it enormously. And uh, and then when I went to work at Mill Hill as an adult teacher, we were still doing those trips. And then I got the privilege of going, being paid to go back there every year, walking. Uh, I was I was I was a top rope sailing instructor by then, so I was I was teaching kids um, to climb uh, on the on the crag opposite uh, White Scar Caves. Is that what they're called? Yeah, yeah. On, on the road that, on that straight road. That goes, yeah, between Ingleton and uh, Rural Head. Yeah. So that's a, that's a big big part of my life. So don't think of me as just a, a townie from, <laughs> from the south. So a couple more questions then, and these are from uh, listeners. Uh, one of the questions was, are you pleased with the impact and the success of the Trans-Euro Trail? Uh, you, you know what I'm going to say. You must know what I'm going to say. if I'm, Because you know that I'm, dare I say, a trail riding industry professional. So I want everyone to go trail riding, obviously. And I want to share the love. I love the it's the it's the international, Eurocentric element of the of the Tet which excites me the most. And of course the dream, you know, once once the Tet extends into Central Asia and Russia, that will be I don't know if that will happen in our lifetime, but it, I think it will happen. And I don't know if it'll be under the Tet banner, but that'll be fantastic, really fantastic. Um, so I'm, um, yeah, I'm, a ma- I'm massively into the Tet. What, of course, I'm, I can't bear seeing is people getting into a pickle on the Tet when it it would appear to an, a layman that they they were out of their depth. When it's obvious, what we don't want is light trail riding in Britain. We don't want sections of the Tet being over over trafficked by people who then get stuck and have to are having to call mountain rescue or annoying a certain. A certain farmer in a certain place you know we want we want that is that it we're back to the trf code of Con- conduct aren't we some people uh some people don't realize how delicate a house of cards this is and we mustn't knock it down and with the what and what stops us from knocking it down is our excellent and exemplary behavior and no one's, no one's used to that as it's the school teacher in music people that people are not used to being told how to behave and they don't like it or not a lot of people really resent being given a code of conduct they think it's incredibly insulting and uh, i would humbly suggest that of course it's not meant to insult anybody it's meant to keep the house of cards standing up and there's no point in letting the house of cards fall down and then after saying oh i didn't realize it would fall down that's what the guardians of the tet and the guardians of the trf need to, to do what it takes to stop somebody through their uh, Let's say you're good-natured ignorance, knocking down the house of cards. I think we should do an episode, Noel, of talking about code of conduct and behaviour on trails. I think, that's, I think there's a subject there. Do it as a compilation. Ask everybody that question and then make an anthology of good answers. I'm sort of one of the administrators. Well, I'm probably one of two people that sort of run the Instagram page for the TET. I didn't um, know that. And one of the things we try to do is just to sort of include as subtly as we can 
points from the code of conduct with each post in a way, or just reinforce it the whole time. Yeah. And you're right. It's really hard to do, Austin, isn't it? In a way that doesn't come over completely in a way that turns people off or makes them feel lectured to. Yeah. Really difficult. Yeah, we've got to keep trying. Right. I think we'll do one more question and then we'll call it a night. It's been brilliant. Are you looking forward to electric motorbikes? As a, as an older man now, well, you know, as a 56-year-old, there's going to be a day eventually when I can't, when I'm going to be finding it harder to trail ride or I'm more creaky or I'm more scared of crashing and I'll probably be retiring to some kind of either electric mountain bike thing or or something. The, 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 uh, the punk rocker inside me wants an electric mountain bike electric motorbike to ride on public footpaths and bridleways which i don't would not feel was an unethical act i think it's all about the noise it's as simple as that and um so uh i'm i I can't imagine i can i can afford one for the time being but uh yes i've got i've got no problem with it and also the wind is blowing that way you know it wasn't that long ago when people normal people would have just gone mental if you told them they couldn't drink alcohol and then drive their car they would have just said are you out of your mind of course i can do that you know it's and it's like smoking indoors in our lives we've seen the wheel turn and then we never we're all old enough to imagine a time when you know when everybody smoked everybody smoked all the time i teach you to smoke in lessons (laughs) and it and it changes and and a hundred years from now there won't be dirt biking will there it'll be it'll, hopefully it'll be all electric yeah and then of course people will be saying can you believe it they used to be like roaring across this <laughs> this prairie making you know loaded by making a huge racket and they got away with it yeah. <laughs> but uh yeah so it's i mean it's gonna happen whether we like it or not we have to obviously just try and be one uh, step ahead of the curve and we you know uh embrace the inevitable change it takes i think it takes older people dare i say like us to realize that things can't be the same the whole time that's you know that's the brexit that's the nos- the brexit yeah. nostalgia thing it's it's not britain's not the country it used to be there is no british empire you know it's, things have changed and we've got to yeah. work with that or 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 be in real it'd be in a real pickle yeah <laughs> all right lads <laughs> thanks for having me um really uh, really uh, flattered to have been asked to be on your on your show and um you're very good at letting me witter on okie dokie right bye. bye what did you think of that that was quite special wasn't it yeah i really enjoyed it i was quite apprehensive about it because i bumped into austin at sort of nec bike shows I happened to be on the same ferry as him going when he was going out to Spain to do a film in 2012. But it's always been at a, at a wrong time to sort of sit down and have a chat with him. You know, he's always been busy doing something else. So it was great to just be voice to voice with him like that. I've bumped into him a couple of times as well. And he's very open. He will just talk to anybody. That whole thing yeah. about, you know, I'm just a citizen. I've made a couple of films. I do this, but that's me. He is very, very approachable. But what a raconteur. Is raconteur the right word? I think it is, yeah. Somebody that's re- really good and amusing at, at speaking. Well, he's all of that. Definitely all of that, isn't he? He's very good. God, it was such good value. I kind of listened to it, to the link you sent me today, and I thought, oh, this is just, this This is why I said you're putting it out as a two-parter. It's, it's too good to give away in one go. 
Well, I don't, I don't know. I, I couldn't. There was no. I think it has to be. It's good in its entirety, though. Isn't yeah, it? people can pick and choose whether they've. Well, they'd have listened to it by now. But it's an hour and hour and nineteen minutes of just sheer talking fun. Yeah, and passion. He's so passionate about it. I can't believe you brought up you and Charlie. That was outrageous. That's what everybody wants to know. I'm just doing it for the people. <laughs> I was genuinely going to. I thought today. I'd go, I think I am going to send him my copy of Mondo Enduro. Because it seems terrible that he, he doesn't have a copy of it himself anymore. Well, I just picked it off the shelf and I looked in the cover and there's a lovely little message from Ashley <laughs> with the deck 2007 when she gave it to me. But yeah, it was great. I loved it. And I thought he was really easy to talk to, very candid about stuff. But it was great. Yeah, you kind of feel that what you see is what you get. There's no other side to him, is there really? It was an easy edit then. It was just the easiest edit I've ever done. It was just like those whole sections of five and ten minutes. I didn't even need to take anything out. It was literally instead of taking me an hour and a half. Well, it was, we nearly recorded for two hours and normally that's probably like three days work almost. And it took me three hours in total, I think, which is good. So he's got a couple of events coming up that people should definitely try and get to. One is the Adventure Travel Film Festival dot com. There's one in the Cotswolds in England in August and uh, August the 12th and 14th and one in Scotland in Perth in July the 8th to the 10th and then what's the event in what's the event in Scotland well it's, it's the tra- Adventure Travel Film Festival oh the, the film festival's put on up there yeah. I didn't think we talked enough about the film festival but I was going to say if people are thinking about the film festival it does always sell out pretty quickly I think the other thing was the the Vince which is the trail biking orienteering fun thing in the Pyrenees that's in September and I think there's something like 180 places for that for accommodation and he said there's 112 tickets already sold and if you get in early it's 260 quid I just read it a bit on the um on his website motocross spaceman clothes are forbidden wear armor yes but under your crocheted poncho <laughs> Thanks for listening. We really appreciate your support. Don't forget you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And if you really appreciate what we do, you could consider supporting us on Patreon or buy us a coffee. Links are available on our website, which is tampodcast.com, tampodcast.com, where we also have a limited selection of branded stuff. But either way, please keep listening and spreading the word. See you next time. (laughs) 